We've been in a series called Incarnation for the last couple of weeks. I'd like to give you the conclusion of that. Uh, to do that, let's open in a word of prayer. God, the mystery of you coming down to earth is always going to be beyond our understanding. And so, in these moments, as we reach out to try to grasp for meaning and insights, may we once again be captivated by humility to recognize and to declare that you are God and we are not. So with all the questions that we may have or all the uncertainties that we may struggle with, may we be inspired once again by the things that we do see, by the message of hope that you share with us. And may we be inspired to live out this incarnation in this world and to do so in a way that is powerful, transformative, and truly brings greater love and hope and peace to all of the dark, chaotic places that we face. And I pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Our passage comes from Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Over the last several weeks, we've been talking about this word incarnation and trying to flesh out everything of what it means. And today we'd like to talk about what does it mean to be incarnational people. So if you missed some of those messages, would it encourage you to check those out online. Um, but today we want to ask the question, if all of that is true, and if all of that is a powerful message of what it means to be uh, followers or believers in this God who has taken on flesh, then today I want to ask the question, what does it mean for us to become people of the incarnation or to become incarnate people? To be, if we're going to be followers of an incarnate God, somebody who has taken on flesh, then what does that mean for us who are already flesh? And this is a word that is actually used quite a bit, as you can see, in a variety of ministries um, in churches all over the place. So you can, we can talk about incarnational leadership. We can talk about the tangible kingdom and how to bring incarnation, incarnational ministry to missions. Um, and a lot of the ways in which this word is used, incarnational, really means service, really means giving 
putting hands and feet, uh, actions to the things that you believe. Today, though, I'd like to share a little bit about what does this mean in relationship, not just to what we do in ministry, but in relationship to all relationships that we have. You are an individual, and in work, and in love, in parenting, in all of the variety of activities that you are involved in in life, you are in relationships with other people. So as an individual, in relationship with other people, I want to ask the question, what does it mean to incarnate this message, this gospel, this hope, in between you and this other person? And the reason why I've thrown up an image of a gap there is this. How many of you have received an email, and it was from somebody that you knew, but the email, because you couldn't quite figure out the tone or the real intention behind it, left you feeling kind of little sick to your stomach or nauseated or a little uncertain as to the intentions behind this particular email. Somebody sent something, and maybe you, you know this person, you don't know them quite that well, or maybe you do, but something about that email left you with a gap of understanding. Did they mean it in this way, or maybe they meant it in this way? How many of you have experienced that kind of gap of knowledge? How many of you have had a business relationship or been in a meeting, and you went to the meeting, and you had that conversation, and then you left thinking, thinking that you understood exactly what was going on between the two of you, only to find out later you were under completely different levels of understanding? How many of you have experienced that kind of gap of knowledge? And Due to the realities of humanity, due to the realities that all of us have a tendency towards the negative, oftentimes the default for every single one of us is to throw inside that gap not the benefit of the doubt, not trust, not love, not those. We throw in there the most negative, nefarious possibilities that there could be, oh, this person wrote that email because they were really trying to dot, 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 fill in the blank, get back at me, trying to get, get revenge, whatever it is. And this happens in leadership, this happens in organizations, this happens in relationships where somebody says something and rather than giving the benefit of the doubt to the other person, we immediately conclude that person is somehow against me or that individual is making a decision that's trying to put me down or that boss is trying to make a decision that's trying to marginalize me within the organization. The things that we put in this gap between myself and the other have a tendency to be negative. And people study this, of course, in all the behavioral sciences. And what I think is important about this message of incarnation is that sounds to me exactly like some of the struggles and the challenges that we have in our relationship with God. And that when there's a gap of knowledge or when there's a misunderstanding or when there's something bad or negative that happens or some sort of communication that happens, the thing that we put in that gap between us and between God tends towards the negative. Now, that's obviously not true for everybody, but in my experience, there's a lot of people that go through life and when something happens, the immediate thing that we put in there is not well, maybe there, there's a better way, or maybe God intended something, or maybe there's something that good can come out of this. Oftentimes, the thing that goes in that gap is, well, where the heck was he in the first place? Well, what was he thinking? Well, that doesn't seem to be good evidence for your existence. Why are you doing that? 
And the thing that we put in there has a tendency to be negative or has a tendency to have negative implications or evaluations of whatever kind of relationship that you're in. And what I would suggest to you over the last several weeks, we have attempted to peer deeply into incarnation and say, that's exactly what God is attempting to do in becoming flesh, is to fill in that gap with an understanding of God who seeks you out in love, in empathy, in withness, who wants to carry your burdens with you. And so even though there's this gap of understanding, the incarnation comes down and says, I want to sit in that gap and help bring meaning and understanding and redemption to whatever negative feelings or thoughts or evaluations we might have there. From up to down we was the first message, and we talked a lot about philosophy. We talked about Plato, and we talked about all the different ways in which, in the midst of all the chaos, we're trying to reach up to some sort of higher understanding. There's this gap of understanding, and so we're trying to reach up to grab onto some sort of philosophical root that will help us make, make some sort of sense of the chaos down here. And the incarnation says, no, don't, don't reach up. I'm coming down. All the logic that you're attempting to reach towards is actually down here in flesh and in bones. So we actually talked a lot about a philosophical gap and how the incarnation is attempting to fill the philosophical gap. From out to in was all about empathy, a God that reaches out to us but sits in and with us in all of our misery, all of our pain, all of the clouded, rainy darkness that overshadows us. God comes and sits with us, filling in the gap of feeling, filling in the gap of the absence of empathy or the absence of connection. And from then to now, which was last week, is the some off distant place in the some future we don't know when, when heaven is going to be the reality. But right now, we're just kind of struggling. Sometime then in the future, this heaven thing will happen. And the incarnation says, no, 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 no. The heaven and earth thing is actually coming together right here, right now, and incarnation says we can experience the fullness of that filling in the gap of this weight, W-A-I-T, the holding on of whatever is going to come. And tonight I'd like to share what I think is filling in the gap, taking all of those things, putting them into practice here and filling in the gap between you as an individual and all of your relationships, whether that be work, whether that be love, whether that be parenting, whether that be friendships, wherever it is, the incarnation now fills in that gap and moves us from a focus of I to a focus of the other, and filling in that gap to bring intimacy, healing, restoration between those relationships. And it, for me, it's summed up in this word that we read from Philippians chapter 2, the word humility. Humility. This was the central theme that's driving that Philippians 2 passage. Now, for those of you who've been with us, you've heard us talk a little bit about uh, before that Philippians chapter 2 passage being this beautiful um, statement of belief, of a kind of an early creed of Christianity stating, we believe that God has made himself flesh. But the fundamental premise around why God has made himself flesh is based upon this word, humility. 
humility. What does that mean, and why is that so important to the incarnation? Humility is going to be a difficult word for us. Uh, We're not quite sure exactly what this means, how it's supposed to be played out. There's lots of theological challenges for humility. This caption says, "Uh, it's a tricky theological point. You say that you covet your neighbor's humility? So there's all sorts of complications to this. And humility is not the denial of self either. It's not the it's not, as we traditionally say, a complete denial of you, who you are as uh, an identified person. And it's a little bit challenging for all of our relationships include some sort of self-centeredness, some sort of self-preservation. For example, how many of you as parents got together with your spouse and said, you know what, you, you know what, our genes are so good that it would be horrible of us. It would be irresponsible of us if we did not procreate. We must do this for the betterment of society. We must do this because it is our duty. Yeah, I see some thumbs up right here. We must do this because it is our, for the betterment of society. It is our due diligence to procreate. So you have children not because of selfish needs, but because of altruistic needs, and you know that the world will be better because of that. How many of you? Yes? Hmm... No. You have kids because you want to. You have kids because you desire to have this experience. You have kids because you yearn to be a part of that beautiful thing of seeing this little thing that comes out of you grow up to become this thing that argues with you. I mean, that's what you ultimately want to have happen, right? You want this experience. So part of the journey of having children is a self fulfilling kind of a need. How many of you, when you proposed to your spouse, said, I'm going to do you a favor? (laughs) I knew it. I knew Kwame was going to raise his hand. I'm going to do this thing for you. It is my duty. It is my due diligence because I can see that you need it, that I am going to lay down my life. (laughs) That's deep. Oh, Kwame. Sue Ann, I'm so sorry. No, no. You got married because you wanted to. Because there was something that fed who you were, some desire. And, you know, you don't want to be with somebody who says, well, I'm, I'm really in it for you. <laughs> Only How many of you on your friendship say, you, ultimately, you know, I'm just doing this for you. I'm only your friend. I answer your calls. I return your texts just simply because this is altruistic because I'm giving it all for you. How many of you, when you apply for a job, go to the company and say, I could see that you needed some help. So I'm clearly here to help you. No, you're there because there's something self-fulfilling about what it is that you want to attain. You want to have a career. You want to have a job. You want to have... So when we talk about humility and when we talk about this ethic of laying down oneself, I want to say at the out front that it is not a clean and clear kind of an ethic. There are some complicated things that uh, participate in this ethic of humility. And for those of you who have taken Economics 101, you might have heard of this guy by the name of Adam Smith. And one of the things that he has talked about and probably his most famous quote is the idea of the invisible hand. Now, again, we're talking about economics, and what he would suggest here is that 
There may be some really good social things that happen as a result of you pursuing an individual want. You pursuing an individual need, an individual want, may actually benefit society. So as you want to sell more products or as you want to produce this thing that gives you satisfaction and sell that on the market, as a result of that personal innate desire, individual desire, the whole society is going to benefit. And he called that the invisible hand. Nobody would ever say that you're in it for selfish reasons, um, although maybe some of us could deduce that by some behaviors and actions. But the invisible hand is that personal, selfish, or self-serving kind of motivation that pushes the economy forward. And again, there's, of course, all of these different kinds. There's all sorts of debates that happen regarding the merits of that and how to interpret all of that. So I just want to say at the outset that when we talk about humility and when we talk about the Philippians 2 passage and the incarnation being an example of humility, there's this weird mysterious paradox that exists that as we lay down our lives, we recognize that sometimes we do so because we get something out of it. So I just want to acknowledge that. Okay, what is humility? Well, if you take a look at the dictionary definition of humility, it is the quality or condition of being humble, modest opinion or estimate of one's own importance, rank, etc. And I love it when definitions use the word in the definition. So, okay, what does humble mean? Not proud, not arrogant, modest, low in height, low in stature. In Christian circles, or maybe in some religious circles, I don't know if this is fundamentally a Christian phrase, but I hear this phrase sometimes, it, humility is not that we think less of ourselves, but that we think about ourselves less. That's another way of putting this concept of humility. In Philippians chapter 2, however, the word in Greek is Tapeno frosune. Everybody say tapeno frosune. <laughs> not bad, not bad. Tapeno frosune. Now, that particular word actually comes along in the same kind of ideal uh, that we just mentioned about lowliness, about thinking of yourself less, insignificant, weak, servile, slave. This is how the word is traditionally used throughout ancient Greek literature, and you can look this up in all sorts of different um, ancient writings. The fundamental essence of this definition, however, is problematic, for the fundamental definition of humility is somebody that lacks power. You give something up, or you make yourself lowly, or if you're in a servile or a servant or a slave state, it is somebody that has actually given up power. And you're in that position of humility because you have either relinquished or you have not fought for any sense of true identity or extension of your identity. The challenge that I have with this definition, and I think what Paul is doing in this letter to Philippians, is flipping it around a little bit. Because the incarnation, or the idea that God has made himself flesh, definitely is an emptying, definitely is a pouring out, definitely is a made himself nothing. But the connotation to this particular word in the usage of Philippians 2 is not an absence of power. It's actually full embrace of power. A God that has not relinquished that power, but has leveraged that power that he has 
for something, for the service of something. Notice this phrase again. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, and here's the key phrase, value others above yourselves. And notice that the definition of humility that we talked about, that you look in the dictionary and you look in the ancient Greek, is all about the self. What you think of yourself, the attitude of yourself, what kind of position you put yourself. And this definition here in humility, the focus starts to extend outwards. In humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. And the verbiage there and the way the phraseology works is an intentionality for how you value others, an intentionality for how you lift one another up, an intentionality for how you look after the interests of others. This is not a definition of humility that means or just simply says, put yourself low. That would be what I would consider to be a passive definition of humility. This definition of humility is an active one. I am actively seeking out others in my life. I am actively looking around me to lift them up, to encourage them, to seek after their interests, to value them above myself. It's not a passive definition. It's an active one, which in my mind fits perfectly with the incarnation. A God that has sought out desperately to see value in who we are. A a God that has sought out desperately to look after our interests above himself. A God that has sought after us to encourage us. This is not a definition of humility that is disempowering. This is a definition of humility that is empowering. To take what you have and if I can sum up all last three weeks of incarnation teaching, to take all of that, absorb it into our identities, and then deploy all of that beautiful ethic into this world to look around and say, how can I encourage? How can I seek after their interests? How can I value others above myself? This is not passive. This is not about being in a lowly state. This is not about just thinking less about yourself. This is about being active in seeking out others to actually sit in that gap between you and the other to see what you can put in there to lift up, to encourage, to seek after their interests, to value them. And that word value is so critical and so important. Now, what I've just shared with you, um, I think, is what's going on in this passage, and I think is what's going on in the incarnation. And I love it when these kinds of insights make their way into popular literature. There's three books that I think highlight some of this, and they are written specifically for business, for behavioral science. They're written for how people should act and behave if they want to find success in life. Um, So the first one is a guy by the name of Adam Grant wrote this book, Give and Take. It's a recent publication, and he's written about different ways to succeed. He talks about givers, takers, and matchers, and he fleshes all of this out. But this quote, I thought, summed up a little bit of what we just talked about in the definition of humility 
applied to theories about success. He says this, success depends heavily on how we approach our interactions with other people. Notice that. That's the gap between the individual, other people, our interactions. What do we put in there? Every time we interact with another person at work, we have a choice to make. Do we try to claim as much value as we can or contribute value without worrying about what we receive in return? Now, he goes through a whole bunch of pages to flesh some of this out, but I love the setup of that. Whenever there's a gap between you and another person and there's an interaction there, Humility, by this definition, would seek not to gain value for ourselves in that circumstance, but to seek the value that we can contribute to the other person in that relationship. And he goes on to say that givers ultimately become more successful. And part of that has to do with gaining community, other people around you that have benefited from your generosity. That, to me, is a definition of humility. When you have those interactions, when you have those moments at work where there's that gap of knowledge where you're not quite sure, where you're, not, you're trying to understand, do you seek to add value to the other person, which can be anything from giving them the benefit of the doubt, trusting that they had your best interest in mind, believing that they actually had the company or the project's best interest in mind until you see otherwise, like evidence to the contrary. And what you put in that, trusting and believing. And by adding value, by uplifting and encouraging, by seeking out what their interests are, Adam Grant would say, this is the path to success. I would just call that humility. Humility exemplified in the way that the incarnation exemplified that humility. John Dixon wrote a book entitled Humilitas, which is essentially an entire book on this concept and idea, and he would say that humility as a fundamental Western ethic actually got its start with Jesus, and he makes his argument there. Whereas the Roman government and the Greek government and all other ancient societies fundamentally were self-serving and self-seeking, it was at the cross that humility got launched into Western society. So he fleshes this out. But he writes in his book, Humilitas, humility is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use influence for the good of others before yourself. More simply, you could say the humble person is marked, and I love this, by a willingness to hold power in service of others. Again, this is not a definition of passivity, Humility just simply being just let people walk all over you or you stay lowly. This is an active definition of humility. Holding your power, recognizing you do have this power, deploying it for the service of others. Last, Joel Mamby wrote a book, Love Works, which is all about how love actually works in the workplace. And he writes this, Agape love is the foundation for the best and noblest relationships that humans are capable of. It is deliberate and unconditional love that is the result of choices and behaviors rather than feelings and emotions. In that regard, agape love is about the values we embrace as a way of life. And it is a determination to behave in a certain way that stems from our regard for other human beings, regardless of how we may feel about them. This, to me, is an exemplification 
of that exact humility. Exemplified in love, exemplified in the incarnation, filling in that gap between the I and the other to exemplify these values, not just out of feeling. It's a way of life. And what's fascinating, this is just one example that he points out in his book. When you do this, it actually works to your benefit. Decisions that are made autocratically, while they take very little time for the decision, often take a lot of time for implementation. But if you were to love, if you were to extend value to another person, if you were to look after the interests of somebody else, invite them into the process, exemplify humility in that organization, well, the decision time might actually take a little bit longer, but the implementation time takes a lot shorter. So this is just an example of how love, humility, all of these values work. Fundamentally, I think because all of us, every single one of us, want this gap to be filled, not with scrutiny, not with negative evaluations, uh, not with a withholding of any connection until I wait and see what you say. But we want this gap to actually be filled. We want this gap to f- be filled with things like trust. And when there's a difference between I and another, and we're not quite sure if we've actually come to terms or there's a misunderstanding or a miscommunication, I, the incarnation, the humility of the incarnation says, I'm going to extend to you trust. I trust and believe that you actually have my best interests in mind. Which, by the way, hopefully exemplifies that I actually have your best interests in my heart as well. We put in that gap, patient understanding, where we just hold on and say, wait a second, maybe there's something about why that person sent that email or said what they said or decided what they decided. Maybe there's something going on. Maybe there's something I don't know. Maybe there's something that I could come to understand about what's going on to extend empathy, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. And maybe instead of lashing back, oh, you said this in this email, I'm going to say this in this email, maybe we fill in that gap with kindness and say, I'm, I'm sorry, just to make sure, am I understanding you correctly? Or thank you so much for sharing your feelings. And ultimately, the highest value, the highest ethic that we want to put is we want to put in love and say, I'm going to extend to you in all of my relationships, in all of the interpersonal, dynamic, complicated, dysfunctional connections that we all have, I'm going to put love in there. How do we incarnate? How do we follow this God who has come down, come in, come to the now, with all of the beautiful message of the good news, how do we incarnate? We fill in that gap with love. In every relationship, in every connection, in every moment where lives and paths intersect, we fill that in with love. This is really hard to do. Why? Because we often wait. Trust, kindness, understanding, we wait for the other person to extend that to us, right? We wait for them to extend whatever values we want, which is the complete opposite of humility. 
seeking value for ourselves. And what the incarnation says and how the incarnation commissions us to live in this world is to say love is not the end of the relationship. It's not what I get out of it after I wait and see what happens when somebody values me. Love is actually the beginning. And if I could initiate that space with kindness, with love, with patient understanding, with trust, and if I can trust somebody, love somebody, even in the midst of misunderstanding, that could actually radically transform this relationship. And trust is the easy one to talk about. Why? Because trust is earned, right? You read this literature, go back and read some of these people. Read some of the behavioral sciences and psychology. Trust isn't earned in psychology. Trust is actually something that you give first that sets the foundation for a safe and secure relationship upon which business, relationships, etc. begin to flourish. It's the other way around. And what the incarnation does is it extends to us that love, that trust in this gap and says, this God loves you, trusts you, extends patience, patient understanding to you, and then formulates the relationship upon which we can then live. So this is just the beginning. So my friends, I would like to suggest to you We're asking the wrong questions. How do we incarnate? How do we take all of these values, the very essence of a God that has come down, that has come in and come now? How do we do all of that? We don't ask the question, how can I be more humble? We need to ask the question, how can I add value to this relationship? Because if we ask the question, how can I be more humble, where's the focus once again? So we don't ask the question, how can I be more humble? We ask the question, not I, other. How can I fill in this gap? How can I add value to this relationship? What can I do right now that adds love, trust, kindness, patient understanding to this relationship right here, right now? But wait a second, there's confusion, there's misunderstanding, there's hurt feelings. Exactly. That's the point. Incarnation comes into that chaos and says, I refuse to perpetuate that unkindness, that misunderstanding, that dysfunction. Incarnation says, okay, there's a gap. Let's fill it in with love. Let's fill it in with trust. We don't ask the question, how do I make myself more lowly? Rather, we ask the question, how can I fill in this gap with love? In other words, how can I, in that gap, incarnate the love, the grace, the mercy, and the joy of God here, now, and with that other person. I don't imagine this is going to be easy, and I don't imagine this is all, uh, yay! This is hard work, because you fight against the very impulses. When somebody sends you that bad email, you want to send one right back. When somebody disses you, you want to diss them right back. When somebody hurts you, you want to hurt them right back. So the challenge of the incarnation is to put in that gap between you all of the things that God put in that gap for us. So it starts with understanding what God has done for you. And today, once we come to a little bit greater understanding of what God has done for us, 
hopefully we can now do that very same thing for others. Through His power, through His might, through His Spirit, through the challenges and the dysfunctions of all of our relationships. But I really believe that if we could do this, if we could extend this kind of love, if we could, if we could extend this kind of kindness in that gap, if we could incarnate, put in flesh and bones and words and in listening and in attentiveness, this kind of love, that could radically change every single one of our relationships. Every single one. Think about your children. Think about your spouse. Think about your friendships. Think about your parents. If we could extend that kind of love there to connect and redeem that connection and to put in that gap patience and kindness and love, that could make a world of difference. So that's incarnation from I to the other. Humility, as Philippians 2 shares, is not just about making yourself low. It's about empowering yourself to seek after the other, to add value to that other person in that relationship, to seek after their interests, and to put in that gap between you and them everything that God has put in the gap between you and him. Let's pray. God, thank you for being an incarnate God. And as we began and prayed about the mystery, we embrace it once again. And Lord, help us to be this kind of incarnate follower of you. I pray for all of my friends, my brothers and my sisters here, uh, that we can glean from you a little bit more of how to live this out and to exemplify in small ways and in big ways, your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray in your name. Everybody said, amen.